In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made that have been made. And without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all humankind. The light shines in the darkness. Well, if those words sounded familiar to you, you might have recognized them as the opening of the prologue of John's gospel, his great biography of the life of Jesus. But if it sounded familiar, you might have also noticed that I didn't quite finish that last sentence of the opening paragraph. The light shines in the darkness, and I'm still not going to quite finish it yet. Because today, in the second week of Advent, we're invited to that comma in the sentence. We're invited to observe the pause. You see, in the second week of Advent, we're invited to notice the light, yes, but even more than that, we're invited to see, to really see the darkness into which the light shines. We're invited to see it and to name it. We're invited to let ourselves feel it and to lament it this week. Will you pray with me? Gracious, holy God, would you have mercy on us this morning? Would you give us courage this second week of this Advent season to notice your light, yes, but to see the darkness, to name it, feel it, grieve it, lament it. Help us, O oh Lord, this morning as we lament with you. Amen. Well, I'm going to actually ask my husband, Chris, and my brother, John, if you would bring the podium up to the stage. I um, just want to say, by way of introduction, my name is Kathy Haug, and I am so excited to be a part of the Advent teaching team in this season. And uh, we uh, have had just a, a great time praying and preparing for this weekend Advent. And as part of my role here in this community, too, I'm also just honored and, and blessed to be one of your sent and supported missionaries, working with uh, college students and faculty across the Midwest through the Ministry of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And something I think to know about me this morning, uh, I don't love unresolved things. I, I don't know about you guys, but I don't love things that go unresolved. Uh, I'm a musician by background, and I, you know, sometimes at the end of, of a song, 
if you're musical, you, you get this. There, if you have a chord that doesn't quite resolve, right, it's dissonant. Like if you're a musician, you, sometimes you cannot go on with your day. You literally can't function until someone hits the root chord. Are there some musicians out there? You kind of know what I mean. Um, or it's like, you know, you work on a thousand piece puzzle and you get to the end and you realize the last piece is missing, right? It's the worst. Uh, or maybe it's the best game of the year, you're in the last minute of the best game of the year, and they interrupt your program for a special weather bulletin. I don't like unresolved things. I want to know how things end. In fact, when I see a new movie or start a new book, I, I usually find someone who's read it or seen it before, and I say, can you tell me who dies? Because I don't want to bond with anyone, character, overly, right? Is, is anyone? Okay. I know some of you are made of stronger stuff, and you love the twist ending or the suspense, right? I don't understand how that's enjoyable or a form of entertainment. I don't think humans, generally speaking, love a lack of resolution either, but that is what we're invited to this week. We're invited to the comma and the pause. And, you know, it's even more accentuated, that tension, this time of year, because we're swimming against stream culturally, right? So there's this kind of unspoken expectation that you hit Thanksgiving, and whether you start with real or feigned gratitude, you're kind of expected just to stay chipper, you know, all the way to Christmas. And then just in case you were tempted to, like, dip a little bit, they're going to start the Nat King Cole songs before Thanksgiving, so there's no temptation to break the mood. But ironically, this is not the message of Advent. In fact, church, I don't think we're really good at stopping at the comma, at pausing to lament, but I wonder how much sweeter our rejoicing would be Check out this image. I think this is a little bit more uh, about the Advent vibe. It's a little bit of the grumpy cat thing. It's maybe not crotchety Christmas, but I like to think grumpy cat is secretly just observing Advent and engaging in mourning and laments of all that's wrong in the world and in ourselves. And I wonder, what if we today said we will cry out with the church across all of history and say, how long Oh, Lord, how long, oh, Lord, will the darkness persist in us and in our world? And so we, too, will lament. Around the sanctuary this morning, we have more than usual um, number of our boxes of Kleenex. And I want you to do me a favor. If you've got a box at the end of your row, they should be one every row or every other row, I want you to actually take a Kleenex and you're going to pass it down. I want everyone to find a Kleenex. You can grab this box here. There's some at the ends of rows. Just start passing the box and take a tissue. Uh, now, some of you are like, Kathy, I haven't cried in 20 years. What's this about? Or maybe you're like, Kathy, it's barely been 20 minutes. What's this going to do? I don't know, but you know what? Worst case, it's just a tactile reminder that this week we're invited to lament together. And you know, at best, you can just pass it down the road to the people like me who could go through a whole box. That works too. 
But I want you to take this tissue and hold it. You know, it's fascinating. When I was studying lament, it is one of the most ancient expressions of the human experience. So when you look at some of the oldest existing art and song and literature, it is forms of lament. So we have images of Egyptian women mourning and grieving. This is a picture of a manuscript from 4000 BC from Mesopotamia. We have excerpts from the Odyssey and the Iliad. The end of Beowulf ends in lament. And you can go all the way to Psalms and Lamentations and modern renderings and capturings of the Psalms. Look at U2's album War and their song, How Long, O Lord? How long must this song go on? Do we have to keep singing the same refrain? How long? So I don't know this morning if this room, the people you're sitting by, I don't know if the, this space is one where you would feel permission or safety to lament, but I want to ask you to be open to that this morning. And most of all, I want you to know that however safe or whatever permission you feel here to let things come up, I want you to know that you can trust God to be with you in your grief and with you in darkness. Because he gets it. He knows it. Think about it. In Advent, we anticipate Christmas, right? We anticipate the coming of God into the world, taking on flesh. And that actually marks the beginning of God's exile, where he leaves heaven, home, and comes to dwell among us. It's the beginning of his exile. And we've been talking about that all fall, what it means to flourish as people in exile. He knows he came into the darkness with us, and he can be with you in your lament. And two, as we enter Advent and we look to Christmas and we look for his second coming, his return, his return will mark the end of our exile and darkness. It will mark our full return. This morning, I would love for you to grab a pew Bible or open a Bible if you'd like to follow along, pull it up on your phone. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 3. And we're going to actually look at the story of John the Baptist. Now, we are not going to look at um, the miraculous conception and birth story and narrative of John, but we're going to look at his ministry. So if you want to turn there, it's on page 1016 in the Pew Bible. And before I jump into the text, um, I want to also take a moment and name for us some of the places that the stories of this season even can be a little tender for us. So there are multiple stories, of course, in the Advent season that are around conception and birth and life. And I just want to say up front and to honor folks in the room that I know that that's a really tender story, a tender narrative and metaphor. And many of you have experienced or have loved ones who have experienced longing for children, longing for conception, and, and for every amazing, miraculous, to be celebrated story that ends with fulfilled hopes. There are 10 stories in the room where that is not the ending you've had. And I know that, and I know it's tender, and we don't want to be flippant. 
about how these stories might sting and find tender spots. And, and many people in our church community have lost, have lost babies this year, have lost through miscarriage, or have lost children in infancy, or have lost babies who are full grown. And some of us have lost moms and dads. And it doesn't matter how old you are, it still stings, right? These stories are tender, and we see you. And we, we see and want to honor those of you who maybe experience some loneliness this season because you are single, and maybe that's a calling and a choice that has contentment and joy for you, but maybe it's one that is filled with disappointment or one that's not of your choosing but that's come as you've been widowed or separated or divorced. And we just want to say we see you and we know this is tender. And in our community too, lots of folks have experienced some insecurity financially as there's been job losses in our community. And it's important that we not just stay chipper, but we name that people are carrying real losses. And this morning we're gonna go there and lament, but we're gonna see how John prepares the hearts of people to receive Messiah in those tender places. So in Luke chapter three, if you want to look with me, the first couple verses, they just set up the kind of context and the religious and political landscape, the leadership landscape. And it says that in verse two, the word of God comes to John in the desert. And we're going to start at verse three. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked roads will become straight, the rough way smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. So John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And, oh, and don't begin to say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe, it's already at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Fa la 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 la. That's happy, right? Hmm. You can see why people are tempted to skip over this text this time of year. But we're going to actually pause. We're going to apply it and see what it has for us. I think actually this is a fantastic Advent narrative, Christmas time narrative, because think about it. Think about the scene. There's all this spectacle. There's all this hype. People have heard about the great show out in the desert, right? John is a quirky character. They want to kind of check it out for themselves. So they're all gathered in, ready for show. And what does John do? What does he call them? Snakes. He calls them out. 
He says, you all came for a little lights, a little spectacle and fun music, but guess what? I'm not interested in surface level, skin deep encounters. I want you to look at the heart. I want you to go deep. See what's in your heart. And is what's coming out of your heart, is that fruit that is in line and keeping with repentance? He says, shed that snake skin and bring me the real core of yourself. And that's what we're going to try to do with integrity this morning. So I want you to take a moment, and if you're able to, I want you to put two hands right on your heart, right on your chest. Now when we pause and we look at the darkness in our own lives and hearts, often that darkness is comprised of two things. It's grief, our griefs, and it's our sin. Now our grief is not necessarily tied to our sin in the ways that we're culpable, we're responsible for our sin, but sin always ought to produce grief, right? So put one of those hands out. These are the griefs. I want you to consider what are the griefs that you bear. These are places of pain or loss. Maybe they're dashed dreams or aspirations and hopes. What are the places that you would call griefs? At whatever level of intensity you feel them. And there's this picture on the screen of these feeling words. I think sometimes it's helpful to have um, prompts to like name the ways we feel about our grief and our sin. And so this is just to give you a pool of things to draw from if you need help naming what you feel as you see these things, okay? So that's the griefs. So take for a moment, you can have your eyes open or closed, whatever you're comfortable with, and I want you to think What are the griefs that you bear? What are those dark places that you grieve in your own heart? And now put your other hand out, and if it's most comfortable, you can rest them on your lap. And I want you to think about the sin, the darkness of sin in your heart. Maybe these places come to mind really easily. You know them, you've been wrestling or battling. Maybe they're more subtle, more buried, but take a moment and with God, would you ask him to help you see and name the sins, the places of darkness in your heart? Now notice as you've tried to see and name the grief and the sin, what do you feel? Let that word or word come to mind to name your feelings. And again, if you want to use one of those words, you may. And we're going to pray this simple prayer together of lament for the darkness in our own heart. We'll read together, and where it says, I feel blank, you're just going to say out loud the word or words that describe how those things make you feel. We'll express our need for God and our remorse and pause and then read on.
So we'll all say our feeling words out loud. We're not worried about what our neighbor's saying. Just speak them out quietly, but out loud. So let's pray this prayer of lament together. Would you join me? Holy God, as I name the grief and sin in my life, I feel... I need you. I'm sorry. How long, O oh Lord, must this darkness persist? Please keep my head above the waters of anguish and my feet from slipping off the ground of truth. Your light shines in the darkness. Amen. So as the people, the crowds, come out to John looking for a surface-level show, he takes them deeper. And they allow themselves to see it and to name it. And let's see what happens next, picking up in verse 10. They're so convicted, they say, John, what should we do then? John answers the crowd, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none. And the one who has food should do the same. The tax collectors, they also came to be baptized, and they asked, what should we do? Well, don't collect any more than you're required to, he answered. Then some soldiers asked him, and, and what, what should we do? And he replied, don't extort money, and, and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Three groups come to John, and he responds to them. But first, when you look at that text, I want you to notice the pronouns, right? These are communities of people, and the pronoun used is we. What should we do? Now, this is important because when we talk about the darkness in us and then in all creation, it's not a me versus them. It's not what's wrong with me and what's wrong with you all. It's not the darkness in here and the darkness out there. It's I and it's we. It's an individual lament and it's a corporate lament. And this is so critical for us to see because often we are tempted when we're thinking about the darkness in all of creation, we are tempted to not name our part, our complicity, in the darkness, or we're tempted to distance ourselves and, and, and not feel it or notice it or lament it at all. But what do we do? And what is the fruit that comes, is produced as we embrace repentance and lament? So let's look at those three interactions and see what the text can tell us. So first of all, we have the encounter with the crowd. Now the crowd comes to John and he says, you know, if you've got two shirts, give one away. If you've got food, share it. So you can see he seems to be addressing their basic concerns about daily needs, right? Food and clothing. So they're most concerned about, am I going to have enough today? And it's in addressing their fear that might tempt them to hoard or hold on and to grasp. 
that as they repent of that fearfulness, of that lack of trust, the fruit that's born is trust in God. And the fruit that comes is also sharing. And fellowship and community is formed. If you have friends and neighbors who live with little in their lives, aren't they the best teachers sometimes about generosity? You know, I, I know people who if you got 50 bucks in their bank account, but you need 40, you got it. Because it's the relationship that is so valued and rich. And then look at the tax collectors next. So what, is, what does John say to them? John says to those tax collectors, don't collect more than you're required to. So what's he getting at there? So the tax collectors, this community is tempted into the darkness of greed and of avarice, and they want to use their role, their access to economic resources for their own gain. And as we lament the darkness of greed and avarice, and abuse of our roles, the fruit of that is that we now have, can have a clear conscience, right? He says, just do what's required. Ethically meet those requirements. And what comes from that is integrity. The fruit is integrity. And then the third group, the soldiers. What does he say to them? He says, well, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. So he seems to be poking at a couple things going on for this group. First of all, there is a discontent that's leading to resentment in this group. So they're resentful. And in their resentment, what are they tempted to do? They're tempted to abuse the power that they have been given. And it leads to exploitation and false accusations and oppression. And as we repent of and lament of the ways we are so tempted to exploit others, to use or exert power over others. When we repent of that, the fruit that is born is justice. The text says it. People won't be falsely accused. There will be justice when we lament that. This fall... You know, we've been in this whole series on what it means to flourish in exile and to look at the stories of exilic people and, and identify in some ways and learn from their experience. And to be honest, one of the places I felt a lot of tension as we've been there this fall is how do I rightly hold and identify kind of the tensions, the we of that group because while yes it is so true that in the west particularly in in the western church we are post-christendom we're past the stage where the christian worldview or ethic is at the center of social political cultural conversation and power and yet at the same time i live in pella we live in a community a part of the state where you can go into many businesses and hear christian radio playing my friends who visit from the coast go, that's kind of strange, right? And we need to acknowledge the reality that we are not experiencing the same kind of marginalization, the loss of livelihood or life that we saw the audience of Peter's letter that we've been studying all fall experience. 
So how do I stand there when, yes, uh, there's a way in which we're at the edges and the church should flourish here, but, and yet I personally, I look at my own life and experience, and I have incredible privilege and power as an educated professional, a white middle-class person in this community, I have extraordinary influence and access to resources. And how do I stand in the we and not over-identify and make light of the experience of marginalized people right in our midst? And yet also name my own part in the darkness. So when I stand and look at the darkness in the world and I think about the grief and the sin in all of creation, often the places, I don't know about you, but the places that I am most grieved, I realize it's because I actually am a part of that. I'm complicit. For me, an example would be when I see someone use their power, whether it's their physical body and stature or their voice or their position, to exert control over another through fear. Particularly think about like adults and children, sometimes we see this happen, right? It makes me so mad. Like it, it triggers something in me that I have a visceral reaction and it grieves me. And when I'm honest, I think some of that is because I know that I am tempted I am capable of doing the very thing. I am capable of using my body and my words and my power to belittle and dehumanize other people. I'm a part of the darkness. So what is it for you? When you look at the darkness in all of creation that we are part of, what are the things that grieve you? What are the griefs you see and what are the sins you see? So again, take a moment, eyes open or closed, whatever you're comfortable with, but I want you to think. I want you to name those places of grief and sin in the world that really hit close to home for you. Would you, in your, the quiet of your mind and heart, would you name them before God? And notice what you feel as you see them and name them. I invite you to pray with me again this prayer, this simple prayer of lament. But this time we pray it together, we. We speak out loud and name the feelings that arise and we ask for forgiveness. Will you pray with me this simple prayer? Holy God, as we name the grief and sin in the world, we feel ashamed and conflicted. We need you, we are sorry. How long, O oh Lord, must this darkness persist? Please keep our heads above the waters of anguish 
and our feet from slipping off the ground of truth. Your light shines in the darkness. Amen. The invitation this week is to press on in the pause, to lament that all the greater our rejoicing will be. And as the story in Luke concludes in verse 15, it says the people were waiting expectantly and they were all wondering in their hearts if John might be the Christ. But John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come. The thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and he preached good news to them. He preached this good news, the good news that Jesus was coming to enter into their darkness, to see it, to name it, to feel it, lament it, to produce fruit in us in keeping with repentance. The Word, this God who was with God in the beginning, who was God, who made all things, to Him we cry out, How long? Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray together as the worship team comes forward. Gracious, holy God, teach us your ways this week. Keep us courageously in the pause and lament that your light might shine all the more potently in the dark places of our hearts and the world. To you we cry, come, Lord Jesus.